0: Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, coming to you once again from the closet. How's everyone doing with the quarantine? I'm calling this day 49 of our shelter-in-place order here in California. And before we get started with the episode, I thought I would share some quarantine stats with you and see if you relate to any of these things. You know, I realized I may have experienced my last handshake on March 12th in Nashville, right before all of this started. I was working with Jason Isbell, and as we said goodbye and good luck to each other, we unthinkingly shook hands. Odd to think that I might not be doing that again for a while, or ever for that matter. I never was a fist bump, elbow touch, or high five guy, but if it means staying healthy, I can adapt. Here's another stat. I've cooked every meal my kids and I have eaten for the last 49 days. This includes a birthday cake from scratch, my first attempt at steak au poivre, a bland potato leek soup attempt, and some really tasty pesto. So far my kids haven't rebelled, so I think I'm doing okay. I also have not been to the gas station in over a month, so I can't even take advantage of these amazing gas prices. I've had a lot more time to read and write and catch up with old friends, and those moments have been some of the bright moments of the quarantine. What I try not to do is think too much about the future because I seem to be more calm and content when I can stay in the moment but it's hard not to wonder about how we will all adapt to our world and our work on the other side of this. You know, I got a letter from an actor that I wanted to share with you all because I think it sums up about how many of us creative folks are feeling. This is from Philip. Hey, Sam, reaching out to you just to let you know how meaningful your podcast has been to me. I'm an actor and I have used long form podcast interviews to gain perspective when I'm losing my confidence and to hear all the different paths that people have taken to success. And also to be reminded that we all have our own unique ways of following those paths. I also like to listen to them to relate to people's pain, frustration, and inspiration. The past few years, I've found myself lucky enough to be working on projects with people who really inspire me. And the funny thing is, as the stakes get higher and the noise gets a little louder, I'm constantly having to recalibrate what success means to me and remind myself why I'm doing what I'm doing. This pandemic and quarantine has been all of the things... Hard, scary, fun, weird, new, frustrating, everything. I live in New York, but I'm out in LA because I was out here doing prep for a new role. But now, like the rest of the world, I am in the unknown territory of having no idea when we may start up again. Being someone who starts to see everything through the lens of a character I'm about to play, this situation has been really hard. The longer I go without working, the more I seem to forget how I even do what I do. It's amazing how, when I'm in the flow, I trust myself, and my confidence can be high, but quickly the air can be let out, and at this point I understand that it's all part of the evolution, but it's still not easy. Through all the pain and loss of this time, it has also slowed me down and given me time to break some habits, and rethink priorities. Basically, this is a long-winded way to say thank you for what you do. You've often made me feel less alone in my feelings. Hope this finds you well, Philip. Well, Philip, that's very kind of you, and I think you voice what a lot of us feel, especially people in the arts. If you start thinking too much about what you do instead of just doing it, the whole house of cards can fall down because creativity is a mysterious thing. And although we work really hard, sometimes self-examination can be our own worst enemy. And certainly with this quarantine, There's a lot of time to think, and I think I really related to your letter because I understand that feeling of wondering, when you take a step away from what you do, how you did it all in the first place. So I really appreciate your writing in, and I think your letter dovetails quite nicely with the guest that I've chosen for today, because she brings up a lot of those things in talking about her own work. As you all might know, I've been using this time to revisit some of my favorite episodes, and the episode I have queued up for you today with Sarah Paulson is a good one. I loved talking to Sarah because she was so honest about her own insecurities, her fears, her shortcomings. And when actors ask me to pick an episode that really gets to the heart of what it means to be an actor, I always think of Sarah's episode. So pull up a chair, sit back, listen to Sarah's episode. I hope you enjoy it. And I want to thank you for tuning into Off Camera and sticking with us through this thing. Here it is. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actress Sarah Paulson. From the outside, it would appear that Sarah Paulson, after her Emmy Award winning performance as prosecutor Marcia Clark in The People vs. OJ Simpson, has made it. She's got a role in Oceans 8, her first big shit-kicker popcorn movie, and has the luxury of sifting through multiple film and television offers to choose a part that, quote, sparks something inside of her. What more can an actor want? But that's exactly the problem for Sarah. She wants the want. Without it, she finds herself in a bit of an identity crisis. She wants to fight for roles and be challenged by an acting part that requires total commitment. As she explains, before Marsha Clark, I was full of all that want. I don't have that anymore. The road to this point was not an easy one for Sarah. She never had her can or Sundance moment like Piers Carrie Mulligan or Maggie Gyllenhaal. She fought hard for many pilots that never saw the light of day. And when she did get her big break on Aaron Sorkin's Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, it was canceled after one season. Luckily, Ryan Murphy eventually came into her life. The prolific producer, writer, and director saw Sarah's unique talent of being able to completely disappear into characters and immediately started casting her in projects like The People vs. O.J. Simpson and American Horror Story. She's finally being seen and gives full credit to Murphy for continuing to throw her, quote, the juiciest, meatiest bones on the planet. Lucky for us, she's still hungry. Sarah joins off-camera to discuss why being an actor or a person for that matter, is not for the faint of heart. What's behind her decision not to watch her own performances and why you'd better not fall asleep on a plane. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi Sarah.
1: Hi Sam.
0: Thank you for doing this.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. And I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show. I first saw you on Studio 60, which is probably like in the middle of your career. But I loved the West Wing and then Studio 60 came along and I was very excited and then gone.
1: Yeah, that was, um, I think we all, <laughs> we all felt a little bit that way. I remember, you know, sitting around with, you know, I mean, Matthew Perry had just come off Friends, Bradley Whitford had just come off West Wing, you had D.L. Hughley, you had Amanda Peet, me at the the first blush of, of uh, some semblance of success, I guess. Yeah. Getting to say this incredible dialogue, this Aaron Sorkin magic sauce that, that happens when you get to do that stuff. And so we were all so excited to be doing it. And, you know, coming off, I mean, how long was the West Wing on? Five, like seven, seven seasons. seasons. So yeah. And then this cast—I mean, I think we all thought we were going to be there for about six years easily. So right. it was really surprising when we found out that that was not the case. You have these jobs that, on paper, look like no-brainers in terms of how successful they're sh- assured to be because of the people involved. And this was one—that was definitely one of those shows. And I'm just lucky, like I didn't buy a house, right? Because I mean, at that point, that was probably the most um, sparkly, you know, in the public eye kind of opportunity that that i had had at that point it's not that i hadn't worked but it was you know one failed pilot after another or a show that would run for six episodes and then be canceled or
0: you know right and this one also probably had all the marketing all, all of oh the oh my god the
1: number of shoot photo shoots we did for the launch of it you know right and the the sides of buses and all these things and they were all there i remember walking down the street in new york seeing a bus or seeing a, a billboard on sunset and thinking oh I've made it, man. And <laughs> Very soon after that, I was convinced I had not made it. <laughs> at
0: well, but all. you're in a similar place now in terms of the, the focus and the size and the marketing of Ocean's Eight and the cast. I mean, it makes me curious because I define your career by the artistry, not by the marketing and not by the size of the you're budget. A rare or breed, whatever. Though.
1: That's, that's not a common held viewpoint, I think, about it. People do hold it. You know, based on, you know, box office success or right. marketing or awards won and things like this. So, but to, to base it on actual content is, is, a, is a better way to do it, I
0: think. I do wonder, having this kind of cast, this kind of marketing, if it feels bigger, if it feels somehow like there's a level that you haven't achieved yet.
1: I think it's very obvious to me because it's my career and I'm living inside it that I have never had a kind of. Uh, big shit kicker popcorn movie success. These are movies you want to go like grab your girlfriends and go watch uh, movies like this. Um, I've just never that has not been my trajectory, not been my road. It was never anything I was seeking except for when I was really young. I wanted to be Julia Roberts. I wanted that career. Oh, you did? Oh, I really did. And um, I wanted to be that kind of winning charming, you know, charm personified uh, America's Darling kind of person because I thought you know at that age when i was in high school i thought that that to me was how you define success and when that did not happen for me it it did take me a kind of uh, you know i had to turn the car in an opposing direction mentally my mental car to just sort of say you know what does it look like what is it that you want to do and i and and it sort of happened at the same time when i met ryan murphy where it sort of dovetailed and it be, it revealed itself to me you know people ask a lot of times like do you have a grand plan or were you always trying to was this your goal? I don't think I really ever had a goal other than I wanted desperately to work as an actor. So I wasn't really looking beyond it so much which I think kept me kind of content where I was. Um but then as opportunities come, you get hungrier. Right. I think. You know, my life irrevocably changed when I, when I won all those awards for Marsha Clark. It, it got worse. <laughs> my mental state got worse.
0: That's interesting. It was,
1: not, it was not a relief that I think, you know, for a long time I, you know, I'd been nominated for several Emmys consecutively, lost them all. Like, you know, most people lose. There's only one person can win, right? So it's not a big deal that I lost. Um, but I think I started to feel like if I would win it, everything would feel better and different and get easier.
0: Kind of like the Studio 60 thing.
1: Kind of like the Studio 60 thing, but it was actually the opposite because now what happens is you think, was that it? Am I ever going to get a part again that's going to be that exciting and exhilarating um, and challenging and scary and resonate with people? Am I ever going to have a chance to have to fight hard for a character while doing it? Is it ever going to matter to me as much? And it had nothing to do with winning an award. I had no idea that that the O.J. thing was going to land the way it did. It could have been completely silly and farcical. Right. So I don't mean that I went into it going, this is a way to win an award at all. It's just my connection to the character and how how desperately invested I was in it was something I hadn't felt in a long time. And then all this extraordinary... uh, External things were happening for me uh, in terms of being recognized that I thought in my childhood fantasy self was going to be the answer to all things from a from a, um, a quieting of the mind state right. from a, from an from an actor an actor. Um, Artist. I always feel so uncomfortable using the word artist to describe really? myself.
0: Yes. Gosh, I think you're such an artist.
1: I, I really appreciate when people say that. I know that I say that about people whose work I admire, but for me I always feel a little like, don't say that about yourself. So I always hesitate to say it, but I think the pursuit of, of excellence and um, honesty in my work has always been the driving force. And I found it in this very crystallized way in playing that Marsha Clark character. And then when I was rewarded for it, I thought, "Oh, here's this thing you thought you wanted always, and here it is, and it's happening in a in a in a way you never could have imagined. And now, what it's left me with is this feeling of dissatisfaction uh, Gosh, in terms it, of in terms of what i'm you know, I look at something and go. This doesn't. This isn't stimulating me. You know, I have. I have all these things happening for me now that I didn't have before in terms of opportunity or scripts coming to me. I never used to get scripts sent to me for my perusal and my interest.
0: You had to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, fight for them and
1: read this for interest, and I'm like, oh, say what? <laughs> Just like, am I interested? Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. You know, it's like a an entire. It's a head spinning new world yeah. for me. You yeah. never had to think about
0: what it. I was never weighing 40 different... I was never sitting there
1: with four scripts going, you could do any of these, which one do you want to do? Right. I was sort of going into rooms and auditioning for things and either getting them or not, mostly not. Um, So part of my own identity was really wrapped up in uh, fighting for something and trying to be seen. I never would think about trying to go in and do something unique, because that to me is like, then you're not being honest and truthful about the character. I always would try to think, What's actually happening here? And I don't know if sometimes that, uh, you know, would devolve into me being incredibly boring. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Um, because I never thought about trying to be dynamic in an audition or trying to be... The, the kiss of death is trying to be good. Yeah. Trying to be good is the kiss of death across the board. You, you well, can't what can
0: try... You try... What can you try to do?
1: Try to be honest. Try to be truthful in your work, in your life. But I think that's the most important thing to me as an actor. It's what I admire the most when I see acting that that speaks to me or moves me is when I feel there is just searing honesty. And it can be ugly. It doesn't have to be um, likable. I played that part in 12 Years a Slave where I played a very horrible, uh, despicable woman who, you know, I had to find a way to get inside that. But I had friends who wouldn't go in and audition for that part because they just thought she was so... They didn't want to be associated with playing something like that, and that had literally never occurred to me. Like, right. not audition for this movie with this incredible director, with these incredible actors, with this part that is so the opposite of me. How incredibly exciting.
0: They were thinking about exactly the things that, that yeah. you know matter in terms of popularity.
1: Yeah, branding. Box office
0: branding, yeah. Q score, or I whatever. don't have a
1: branding, and I don't know what my Q score is, and I don't want to know. Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm just as susceptible as the next person about it. It's just I, I think I got lucky by virtue of the fact that I wasn't working very often as a young person. Um, so it all happened for me a lot later. And so I was able to sort of, you know, it was very clear that there was no, there was no quick way in to
0: success for me. You never had the pretty woman moment. I
1: never had the pretty woman moment. I never had Maggie Gyllenhaal in Secretary. I never had right. Carrie Mulligan in Education. These Sundance splashes, where then all of a sudden you are the girl. That well, never well, happened. Imagine the
0: pressure of that. And though.
1: there's enormous pressure, and and they were also in their twenties when that happened for both of them. And um, I think I was lucky in that it just took longer, and so I was able to get clearer about what I wanted to do. But it was never curated. I didn't have that that luxury of getting to sift through things and make a decision, you know, dictated to me by the quality of the work. It was dictated by the fact that I needed to pay my rent. And
0: I, and I think so. that's so interesting too, because once you have choices, how, how can you not think about what where will this lead you me? You
1: can't, it's that thing of like, uh, ignorance is bliss, they say it for a reason, because I didn't know what I would do or wouldn't do if I had a choice, you know, in terms of what I was doing. Now, I have more opportunity, but it almost, I sort of just feel like, um, you ever see a a paint color wheel Yes. with all the colors, and if you spin it really fast, it goes white? So that's what I feel happens when I have to make a choice like that. It's like, it all becomes a bland blank. I don't know what to do. I, I much prefer to have somebody say to me, I don't think you're right for this, and then I can then make a tape or I can put on a wig and show up at a, you know, Sean Young style at a studio and and try to (laughs) get them to see me, Um, you know, I much prefer the down and dirty fight in a way than being offered something. I hate being
0: offered something. Well, you have to go screw something up.
1: Well, and that's the thing. People decide, oh, she'd be great. You know, right after the Marshall Clark thing, I think I got offered like four movies playing a lawyer. And I was right. like, well, that's original. <laughs> that is so original.
0: Why does that and always I, happen? Because no matter who you talk to in this town, if you had that conversation one-on-one, they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy, yeah. But it, but it happens all the
1: time. It happens all the time. I think it's a laziness on the part of, of yeah. people who are – and also beyond the, you know, I don't mean to make it entirely pejorative, but also – If you're thinking of something and uh, there's a vocational match in terms of a character that somebody played, and you go, oh, well, I know they can do that. I've seen them do it. So I'm not, they won't read. It's a safety So I've seen it, so I know they can do this. So it's safety for them. And I understand it to a certain degree, but I just, I knew I was not going to go do that, uh, play play a lawyer right after I'd played a lawyer just to be in a movie with a lot of great actors. Right. It's
0: like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that, you know. It's fascinating to me to hear you talk about So honestly, the feeling of dissatisfaction. I do tend to have a kind of
1: um, more of a nervous Nelly kind of way of of looking at things. And so I think, you know, I knew who I was when I wanted to win an Emmy. I knew who I was when I wanted to be uh, challenged by an acting part to the point where I didn't know where she ended and I began. I wanted that desperately. So until I had that experience, I was full of all that want. Right. Now, I've had the experience, and as extraordinary as it was, like I don't have that experience now of wanting that. I don't have the want. It's different because you do end up thinking, well, I hope I can do something good again. Yeah. I hope I'll ever be able to do something good again. Can I be good when, without having that same curiosity about what it would feel like to have a part that felt that extraordinary? Right. I'm not saying that I was unhappy. I want to be clear about that unhappy about winning them or that it wasn't an extraordinary experience and that playing that part wasn't the highlight of my life professionally. It absolutely was. I just hope that wasn't the end, you know? I hope I get to do more, and I don't mean award-winning. I mean more experiences where when I walked off the set that last day of shooting People vs. OJ and I wept in my trailer like a baby because they were taking down Marsha Clark's uh, bookshelf and taking the things off the walls. And they were, you know, cleaning out my drawer where I had left, like, sides and gum wrappers and cigarette butts for the last six months that we'd been shooting this thing. It was just like they were taking a wrecking ball to something that had been my house. And so it was, you know, I walked into the courtroom. All the, the clocks were off the walls. The chairs were upturned. And it was devastating for me. It was devastating for me because I knew, and this is before it even came on and anyone had a response to it, that I had not had a part like that And if it took me 41 years to have a part that good, was I going to have to wait another 41 years to have another part like that, that stimulated me in that way? And that's something you do have to say goodbye to a certain part of yourself that reaches a goal that you kind of didn't even know you had, but you know it when you feel that you've met something inside yourself where you go, oh, this thing that I always dreamt about has happened. And now what? I don't know that I ever kept my eye up I think my eye has always been on my paper. I don't think I was ever right. looking to the future and going, God, I hope this happens or I hope that happens. I was just hoping I was going to get to play at all. And so I would just show up for my audition and get it, not get it. Like I said, mostly not get it. I was just striving for something, but I didn't have this enormous you know, hope that I would turn into Meryl Streep or something or that I'd have this kind of career because... You know those things are very, very, very hard
0: to achieve. Uh, of course, so and, many and things nebulous. have to line
1: up, and they're just like it's like what's that like goo that you hold in your hand? And just it's like a
0: well, in our house we call it
1: slime. <laughs> slime, and it's all over. You can't house. you can't hold on to it very long, right? You know, and the moment you think you have mercury. It, it, yeah, mercury. it's mercury. Yeah, the moment you think you have it,
0: it it eludes you. So it's, um, yeah. Well, one of the performances that I absolutely fell in love with of yours is is in Blue Jay, mm-hmm. which. Mm-hmm. I just rewatched it again last mm-hmm. night, actually. And for people that don't know, it's you and Mark Duplass, basically the only two people in the film. But it's, it's this film that's based on uh, two people who had a relationship in high school and they reconnect accidentally, and nostalgia takes over and, mm-hmm. and unresolved feelings come out. But what but once- As
1: they tend to do when nostalgia takes over.
0: Yes. That's what happens. But I think that what's fascinating about that film is if you look under the hood a little bit at the process of that film, that was probably a different experience than you've ever had.
1: Uh, Correct.
0: Going in, and this was not a conventional script. So I wonder if you could describe a little bit the process of that and why it was different.
1: First of all, I've never uh, done a movie that was essentially entirely improvised. There was absolutely an outline that Mark... Um, came up with that was a result of us sitting in a room for a couple of days with a few of his producing partners uh, and myself with, with Mark, and we just talked about different experiences in our lives and nostalgic moments. Um, and we just sort of, this story was sort of born out of that. And then he would write an outline for the day. We would show up in the morning, and he would sort of just say, these are the beats we, I would like to hit in this scene. How we get there is entirely up to us. But these are the things I would like to have happen here to keep the story going.
0: Now, was that terrifying?
1: It was so thrilling and totally terrifying, which is a f- very fun way to work. It was hard. You know, we shot the movie in eight days right, in a tiny town in Northern California. And I-, I had not worked this way before. And there is a big, big part of me that likes a blueprint and a very serious, well-thought-out, drawn plan. And so this was challenging for me. Uh, well, I probably wasn't the easiest person to work with. I think Mark was um, so lovely with me about it, but I think sometimes when I get panicky or fearful, I get a little, um, I don't know, cantankerous, maybe. <laughs> and I was like the new kid in school going, huh, I mean, I don't know if, uh, is it okay if I say? And they're like, yeah, you can say whatever you want. I was like, okay, but, you know. So it was definitely something for me where I was out of my element. I was very, very happy but surprised by the outcome of the movie. I had no I mean, I walked away from that thing going, I have no idea what I'm gonna be. Really? Yeah, I have no idea. It was an experience that was something I wanted to do again, but I had no idea what the what the movie was gonna be. And I don't think they fully knew either,
0: you know. What's fascinating about that film is that there was an allowance of awkwardness and silence to find something else. And there's something very relatable about letting silences play out and searching for what well, to say it's next. it's what you
1: do here. People get to see a little more of a truthful um, connection between two people and also a little more insight into who the person you're interviewing actually is.
0: Right, right. It's
1: a format that is a traditional format, but you're allowing two people to actually talk to each other, we are, as we were talking about before we started rolling, that, you know, we are living in a world now where you go on a talk show, you know, gone are the Dick Cavett days where you can actually have a real one-on-one interview with a person where one person comes on and you just, you talk to them. And if people laugh in the audience, great. If it's not a particularly humorous show, great. Um, but, you know, you can't watch anything that hasn't been cut up within an inch of its life. And everything's happening so fast. And the editing is, you know, and sometimes for a particular style of movie, that works wonderfully well. Other times you feel like it's an assault. Yeah. And you can't experience any nuance between people. And I think that's what's so beautiful about watching wonderful acting is you feel like you're, you know, a fly on the wall. It's an extraordinary thing when actors are able to create that you know, with each other, and I think what Mark did so beautifully in that movie is he let it be uncomfortable. These people hadn't seen each other in a very long time and had had a very emotional youth together that was
0: intense. Was that hard to have moments of, I don't know what I'm going to say next?
1: It was scary to me because I have a, a, maybe you can tell by some of the things I've said, I have a bit of a perfectionistic streak, um, and I really want to get it right.
0: Um, and there was no and there, there was, was no, no right
1: there was no there was no, structure there was no framework for me to look and i think that's why i i didn't know this about myself but i think something i learned after marsha clark was that i really like playing real people because there are fundamental rights and wrongs about them facts that you know about them as people that when things when you're making something up out of whole cloth as as empowering as that is If your imagination is large and you're comfortable playing around in there, you could do anything, you could make any choice. And sometimes like that paint wheel, if you could do anything, then you become like you're staring at a white wall. You don't know what to do. You don't know whether to go left or right because you could do anything. So what is your instinct? I don't know because I could do five things. I have five instincts. Oh, I have five impulses at, at one time. Which one do I follow? I don't know. But if you have a blueprint and you have something you fundamentally know to be irrevocably true about a person, because it's on paper, it's a fact, it's part of history, it's documented, then within that framework,
0: I feel more free. That makes such sense. Yeah, it's it's so, a blank page. There. Yeah,
1: so the blank page thing, it was like in that environment, yeah. as exciting as it was and how, how proud I am of the outcome, it was really white-knuckly for me at times.
0: You know what I find crazy is that when you were a child, the blank page doesn't scare you at all. And I look at my kids and they're like, let's draw. And they sit down and <laughs> they put the page in front of them. Let's draw. And they're, they're just... Whatever, like it doesn't even. There's no self-critic in yeah. there at all, God. and they just start doing something. I'm sitting there going, "What should I draw?" Should? And I, I was the kid who. But do you think you're trying time.
1: to draw something good, or draw something well? Oh, of course. But see, this is the thing. This is it's the, the killer of the imagination. It's the killer of of instincts and impulse, is to try to do something well or good. Not that you shouldn't uh, give it your all with the intention of having the outcome be something you're proud of. I don't mean go into something, but you can't, control, but you can't it. control it. And if you really let it just kind of all hang out, sure. it's like you've got 10 pages of dialogue to shoot today, so you better figure it out. And why don't we do it the simplest way possible so that we can move on to the next thing? And that's not exactly the most creative environment. You but
0: but sometimes the most creative thing comes out of that.
1: I really, I've said this before, but I think any work you see on television that is, that is really good, I think those actors and those filmmakers, those people are very talented because the, 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 the um, speed, the nimble way you have to move, uh, both mentally and physically, uh, is it's extraordinary. I think it's a real testament to all of their talent that you can make something like that happen and that quickly.
0: Uh, that's that's yeah. a really good way to put it. Because I mean, in a
1: movie, if you're shooting a big, big, you know, shit kicker movie, let's just go with that, because I've said that like five <laughs> times. You know, you'll do one and a half pages, maybe two pages of dialogue a day. Right. I mean, I remember when I first started making, I was like, two pages of dialogue, you guys. Oof. Well, then guys, why don't we I mean, all leave a, by 11? Exactly. I'm like, you're all paid so much money, more than, you know, I, 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 and, and you're doing two pages a day. Y'all are slackers. Slackers. It you eat a nine- page and
0: a half for breakfast.
1: Yeah, I eat a page and a half for breakfast. I like to always be shooting. Sitting in my trailer is the death knell. It just uh, for creativity, for energy zapping. The waiting around for the potato chip eating, it's all just really, think about how you feel when you're, you know, the last thing you want to do at work when you're trying to do something creative is feel bored. There's a very famous actor whose name I can't remember. It was either Humphrey Bogart or Cary Grant or one of those wonderful men who said, I act for free. They pay me for the waiting. And I really agree with that. I would do the acting part for 50 cents. Right. I really would. But the part that you're paying me for that I feel is okay, that I can get behind, is the fact that I can't see any of my friends, I miss a thousand weddings, I don't go to people's birthday parties because I'm shooting or I'm on location and the hours are insane, or I've sat around in my trailer for eight hours and they sent me home because it rained. And so, right. you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's the, it's the anticipation and all the things in life that you're missing um, that the money makes. makes I'm like, well, I'll take the money for that.
0: What do you really love about acting, if, you re- if oh. it really comes down to it?
1: Um, I love the camaraderie and the intimacy with lots of times relative strangers. There's a very fundamental uh, truth that when you walk on a set for the first time, odds are you have not worked with that person before. Right. But you are diving into this cold pond with another person, and the other person goes, okay. And you clasp hands and you jump in. And there's something so incredibly um, intimate about it and strange because it's like you'll end up wiping snot off a person you just met in a, an emotional scene where it's like you won't touch your husband or your wife's boogers. It's like, <laughs> I don't want your boogers, but like I'll be wiping off Mark Duplass' snot and he's weeping in my hands and like I met him three days ago. Do you know what I mean? And it's very strange component to what we do, but I think it's um, incredibly invigorating. It makes me feel like a real human being, alive, it makes me feel very alive. And it is it does sort of beg the question, like, what am I doing with my life? I'm playing pretend with strangers who sometimes become wonderful friends. Um, you're just living in this imagine, imaginative um, weird world that people were all creating together. There's something so—like, I love nothing more than going to a, a theater. And that moment before the lights go out and all of these random people have descended in one evening— to see this particular performance. And plays in particular, every night they're different, I know, because I've done them. You never know, I mean, the alchemy, the audience, everything plays into what, what you ate that day, how much sleep you got, whether you did a matinee, you got a bad phone call from your mother, like everything is going to inform. And that audience is getting that one performance that night. And that is it. And then that performance is gone. Jack Lemmon used to say magic time, the minute the lights went out, magic time. Because it's, and so I, sometimes I say that too, just to kind of, Feel like Jack Lamb and I guess magic time right when the lights go out because it's an extraordinary thing you're going to watch people pretend to be other people but you're going to and there's the magic on stage particularly where anything someone does they can tell you we are in outer space but it can be a black box and you as an audience are going okay we're in outer space all of us here have decided that we're all in outer space yeah, they're in outer space so we're going to believe it It doesn't have to be an intricate set, doesn't have to be a crazy costume, but they're telling you what the reality is and you just go along for the ride.
0: And you all do collectively. Makes me wonder about you as a kid. Like, (laughs) your your level of imagination. Adrian, Dr.
1: Freud. (laughs) Yeah, um, I was a... my mother describes it this way. So my, I have a, a sister, um, Elizabeth, who was like a heathen. I can't describe it. She just like a dirty faced always running around. Would, we would both come home from school, get off the bus, come into the house. My sister would tear off her clothes to get into something she could wear outside. And my mother would say, how was your day? And she'd be like, it's fine, 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 everything fine. And like, clothes off. And then I would sit down at the table with my mother. And my mother would say, how was your day? And I would always start it by saying, well. And then I would go into this long story. Well, Susie took so-and-so's pencil, but it was not her pencil. It was, but it had the bite marks in it. I remember telling her this story. Like, the things I would notice or feel um, were worth retelling, very bizarre details, observational detail, like things that I, they were not probably interesting to my mother at all or to anyone else. But I felt that it was important to recount every little thing about the day. And really... It, actor's job is to observe and try to recreate behavior that people recognize as so maybe I, i sometimes think oh i wonder if that was my brain's sort of my early actress way of just noticing observing behavior without even knowing that that's what i was doing
0: hey folks let's take a little break from the conversation so i can tell you about this week's sponsor shady rays You know, we all wear sunglasses and we've all bought so many pairs of sunglasses over the years and we've lost them or broken them or they've gotten scratched or whatever. But for me, I hate paying so much money for sunglasses. And then I found out about Shady Rays. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company. They're not some big corporation that overcharges for sunglasses. In fact, they're here to change the whole way we think about sunglasses with high quality shades at a much lower price crazy thing about Shady Rays is their warranty. It's one of the best warranties in all of eyewear. They'll replace your sunglasses if they're lost or broken for any reason. It doesn't matter what happens, whether you drop them in the ocean or sit on them or run over them with your skateboard or whatever, they'll replace them. And even with that strong of a warranty, they still manage to make quality that I can tell you holding in my hand seems just as good as any expensive pair I've ever worn. They have polarized lenses that look perfectly clear, and most shady rays are only $48. They also provide 10 meals to fight hunger in America with every order placed, and they've provided over 10 million meals to date. And you know, I have four or five pairs. They come in all the classic styles. They're durable, they're lightweight, they're great, and they stand behind their product. And they told off camera that if anyone has a problem, they throw a profit out the window and they do what it takes to get it right. And they have free returns and exchanges. You either love the shades or Shady Rays will pay to ship them back. That's it. And exclusively for off-camera listeners, they give us the best deal they have to offer. This is a Black Friday level deal. You can use the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs at ShadyRays.com. You buy one, you get one free. That means basically you can get two pairs of sunglasses for $48. Once again, you go to ShadyRays.com, use the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs. These can be redeemed only at ShadyRays.com, where you can find all their newest and best shades. Take a minute. Check out ShadyRays.com. I'm sure you're going to like them. I love them. And uh, let me know what you think. Send me an email, Sam All right, now back to the show. So you, uh, your mom and dad got divorced pretty early, yeah. right? yeah.
1: I was two years old. And You're two sister, it was years old. Ten months, yeah.
0: So months. was your mom stable? Was she?
1: There was a lot of moving around. My mother was a very young mother. My mom had okay. me at 21. Oh wow! And I think grew up in a in a family where she felt sort of outside of things. She was born in Alabama, but grew up in Tampa, which is where I was born, and um, moved both of us to Brooklyn, to Queens at first. And
0: what was her? What was she her plan? wanted to be
1: a writer. Oh, she did. Yeah, I and mean, she she was just a writer in her soul and. I just always think it's a very brave thing to think at 21 would I have, like, picked up one kid, picked up the other one, and left this world that um, had been my life and moved to a city like New York, which is obviously very different than Tampa, and um, she got a job at Sardi's as a waitress, and yeah. I mean, and and I, you know, I've joked about this in in other interviews that, like, had my mother mother not done that, I probably would have, I would have maybe been lucky to have been like a Disney princess at at um, uh, Disneyland in Florida because I don't know what my opportunities would have been to get me to New York City and right. put me in a position to audition for a performing arts high school that then put me in a position to get an agent and then put me in a position to be on Broadway by the time I was 19 years old. So those kinds of things, you know, were entirely, my life happened entirely because of my mother's, you
0: know. Well, I wonder how that imprinted on you that that she was willing to sort of, take a chance and and go kind of...
1: I think I was aware of uh, that it was brave. Yeah. And I think I thought of my mother as brave, uh, as a young person. Um, It was hard because we we moved, you know, from Queens to the village to Brooklyn, four places in Brooklyn. Then I moved back to Florida to live with my father for a year. Then we moved to Maine for a year. Then we moved back to New York. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I had lived in, you know, as if I was an army brat or something. Um, We moved a lot. And so... Again, the great part of that is that I was constantly meeting new people. I was constantly in new environments. And it was not always comfortable for me, but it made me quite um, nimble and and facile. in the sense that I could adapt to new environments, I I think, and this probably caused me a little bit of trouble as I got older in the sense that I could become what I needed to become in the environment I was in which made me not really know who I was until a lot later in life. But great training. But great training for enacting. Right,
0: for, but, I, but in terms yeah. of self-identity and...
1: Self-identity was, was something that eluded me for, for longer than I think it would have if I wasn't constantly trying to be whatever I needed to be to survive. It was about right. survival, really. And I didn't know why. You know, I didn't go to college. All my friends applied to college. I somehow forgot to take that seriously. You know what I mean? When everybody was applying and doing things, and my entire core group of friends all sort of flew the coop and went to where they wanted to They knew what they wanted. I knew I wanted to be an actress, but I just sort of had some idea that you could just be one, I guess. I didn't realize <laughs> that, like, you know.
0: Yeah, what was the biggest misconception around that time for you?
1: I just think I thought if you wanted it, you could have it. I mean, I think that was something about my mother um, moving to New York and, you know doing what she wanted to do. It wasn't that her choices were about my sister or me. Her choices were about her. We just benefited greatly from it. I mean, she was a 21-year-old, appropriately narcissistic lady. I mean, I would say that to her if she were sitting here. She was trying to figure out who she was in the world. She just happened to have two children, and so she took excellent care of us and provided us with enormous amount of love. The stable part was not... Because she decided, you know, do you ever see that movie Mermaids with Cher and... Yes. Went on a writer. So it was like, you know, she's in the bathtub and she just points, like, to a map and that's where they're going to go next. My mother was a little bit of a free spirit that way. And she wanted, to, you know, and it's like, well, but what about my friend Jason that I met? And, okay, well, now, I, oh, well, I guess Barbara and I won't be friends anymore. And we're going to move to this new place because mom's got to be in her bonnet that that's what she wants to go and do. Or or we can't afford this apartment anymore, so now we're moving to this. Or
0: How were you willing to live your life for your work? Like, were you willing to not have a bunch of money or not have finer things because you love the work
1: yeah but also that was just dictated to me because i i'd never i didn't grow up with the finer things i didn't grow up with money just um i watched a lot of television actually <laughs> a whole lot of television because i was a latchkey kid so i'd come home at
0: and, oh were you really yeah
1: yeah yeah, yeah. so I would tell like,
0: tell like late at night
1: uh sometimes till late at night yeah 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 i was like the kid who would like drag the stool over and step up and try to open a can of thing, but nobody told me how to open the, uh, My poor mother one time uh, called me and said, get the oven preheated, you know, but no one told me that I had to l- light it. So I just turned the gas on for like 20 minutes oh, and God. then my mom went. And then my, but then I think it was her mistake. Cause I'm like, well, if, why would you light the, why if you knew the gas had been on for 20 minutes, did you then put the, and then like I singed off her eye, her eyelashes and her. Are you kidding. No. <laughs> But I sort of to this day feel like, well, you should have told me. No one taught me. No one taught me how to do laundry. I just started doing laundry because I had to because I needed clean socks.
0: My 10-year-old right now, I have to look under her bed and I have to look in her closet. She's in the phase where who could be under the bed, what kind of creature could be oh, in the closet.
1: I'm still in that phase. <laughs> Are you really? Yeah, I really am. Yeah, I mean, a, is yeah. that something
0: you dealt with sort of like?
1: Yeah. When you're left alone a lot, I think you do sort of wonder if. You know, I, believe, I just can't imagine this it.
0: this this combination of that and and an act of imagination that ends up becoming.
1: I was a real magical thinker, and I still am like that a little bit. Like I would do things where I had this one drawer under my bed. I had one of those, is it like a trundle bed or yeah. something that has a drawer under it? And it would always catch. So if I took a butter knife and could like lift it in this one magical way, it would open. But so I would play games with myself, like if it if I open it on the fifth time, then Um, I'm going to have something for dinner that I like. Or if I open it this time, maybe mom will be home in time to watch this with me. Okay, maybe, you know, it was always this game I was playing to try to negotiate whatever my free-floating anxiety is, and that is still happening.
0: Really? I think that's so interesting, because I think that when I watch your performances, I am, I mean, the thing you said earlier about wanting to disappear into a performance, Mm -hmm. that happens. And I would think some of that is obviously training and experience and acting and doing all those things, but I'm just curious about the roots of where that kind of thing starts and if it starts innately with someone who has an overdeveloped imagination Mm -hmm. or someone who is an overthinker, you know?
1: Well, I am definitely an overthinker. The brain is moving at a speed that I can't even um, describe to you. It's, it's, it's too many thoughts in the brain at one time.
0: How that manifest itself? Uh,
1: just a lot of chatter. Yeah? Yeah. It's never quiet in there. And everyone I know who has any sense of uh, care or interest in me uh, wants me to meditate, you know, not only for my benefit, but for theirs, <laughs> because it's a little exhausting, I think. I haven't had a good night's sleep since I was in the womb. That's <laughs> what I think. I mean, go to, that's the other thing. People who can follow, if you ever you get on an airplane and someone, like, falls asleep before takeoff. And I'm like, listen, man, do you understand what we're about to do? This is a metal tube <laughs> with engines and a bunch of strangers, beverages, weird blankets and pillows, everyone's belongings stuffed in a corridor, someone's got a dog. Like, this is weird. This is weird. And no, and you, there's no time for sleep. We need everybody up and alert and focused collectively on what's about to happen, which is... Fucking weird.
0: We're gonna float around in a tin can. We're gonna can float in the around sky. in a
1: tin can in the sky. Yeah. And in it hurtling through the air, you need to be awake for this. <laughs> I will sleep mid flight, but the takeoff and the whole safety video, and also just the awareness that
0: this is weird. Yeah. And
1: I don't like the person curled up in a bed, like, oh, like before takeoff. I'm like, you get up.
0: I'm the same way. I'm like, don't you have something to read? Don't you wanna be you doing some work to do
1: Yeah. <laughs> Sleeping before takeoff. Who are these this, people? Yeah, do you think this is a joke? This is bananas what we're about to do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm curious about that person mm-hmm. during the time in your career where there wasn't four scripts lined up for you or there wasn't auditions to do, mm-hmm. how did you feed like your need to move? when you didn't have enough work to do. I think
1: truly, and this is a sort of asinine answer, but it's sort of true, I think it's how I sort of started to do sort of impression things. Like, oh, really? um, I was a big viewer of movies and television and theater and music, and it wasn't in some lofty, uh, I want to take in as much art as possible so that I'm as enriched as possible so when I get a great job I have all of this stuff inside of me to just let out. Wasn't like that at all. It was just an appetite for feeding myself artistically. But again, not with the idea of
0: trying to have something to consume. <laughs> no, it was. So wait. So you would you would you would find ways to, like you said, the impressions. Would you find ways to just amuse yourself or? Yeah, to- I mean, it's
1: not like I was like in the mirror going. Bah, bah, bah. It, it was just I would be noticing things about acting that I liked,
0: how I could steal it. Just kidding. I like, but like a but, mimic, like like yeah,
1: my mimic. You know, that's what I mean. That there, but but, like early in my career, I think very early in my career, that's what I thought acting was. Was I would just because I could mimic, I would try to copy something I saw. I didn't have a real sense of self or what my own take on things were to be able to. There's a wonderful um, quote or uh, letter actually from Martha Graham to Agnes de that's about being an artist and um, she basically starts by saying no artist is pleased there is no satisfaction whatsoever at any time there is only a queer divine dissatisfaction that keeps us marching and you know so and there's a whole other thing up keep the channel open if it isn't if you close it the world will not have it And each thing is unique to you it's this incredible thing about each individual person there is only one of you on the planet in terms of the way you see something, the way you feel something, the way you experience it. Anything can only be given back if you put the truth of your experience of it back out into the world. Because it's the only thing that separates any actor from another actor is their particular nuanced sense of something. And if you're trying to do some homogenize, which is what I was doing because I didn't know that the world was interested in my, I don't know, assessment or take on something. It took me sort of growing into myself to sort of realize your version of this person's, you know, your watered down version of this person's truth is never going to be impactful for anybody watching you. Um, and again, this didn't come in a, out of um, an intellectual pro- uh, thought process for me. It came from working with Ryan Murphy and him continuing to throw me something like the juiciest, meatiest bone on the planet, and I just was so hungry and knew that I had this opportunity, that I gave my entire whole self to it, and did not um, look back. And that was the moment that it changed, because I was letting myself be seen. And prior to that, I think, because I didn't have a great sense of self, I was just doing what I thought people did in circumstances, as opposed to bringing my particular, you know?
0: So are you saying that once you started working enough to to not be able to sort of think about what it is that people wanted, yes. yourself was able to come out? Yes,
1: I was no longer thinking about, oh, this must be what present says. oh, this is how you do something charming. This is how you show that you're in love. But I hadn't been in love, and I didn't know what charm, you know, I had, hadn't allowed my own life experiences to inform my work. I was too busy trying to... Um, impersonate something that I recognized as truthful and trying to pass it off as my own, you know? And it just doesn't work that way. I think any actor that people that, you know, any actor I respond to is because they're doing something that is entirely unique to them. And I don't just mean idiosyncratic ways of speaking or, you know, physical behavior. It's just their soul. They're not blocking it.
0: When you're young, you can't put that together, you can't put that right? That like together. you can see it and go, oh, You might I've-
1: know that something, you know, or if if I could look back and think the moments when I was successful in an audition or in a, in a work environment, it was often when it was a moment when I wasn't afraid, but it always happened accidentally. It was never purposefully, uh, you know, thought about in terms of like just let go, just be free. It's something I couldn't understand, and I go, oh, just do that thing that. So and so did in a movie, and see if that works.
0: When you have a talent of picking up on on nuances and yes. things, and you get a response from it, oh, you go, oh, there's well, that's- nothing
1: better than that. I mean, that's like the ultimate drug, the ultimate high. You're like, oh, oh, so you recognize that what I did was truthful and right, and it made you laugh, or it made you go, whoa, that was just like grandma, you know. And then you want more of it, like a like a heroin addict. Give me more. What we all want to be ha- yeah. seen, and that's really the ultimate thing. Everybody wants. You want your mate to see you. You want your work to be recognized as something truthful and good. And people want to be seen. You want to feel that you matter and that you count. And when you're constantly being told no, 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 and that your work isn't speaking to anyone or nothing you're doing is making a difference to anyone and you're not being chosen, it's hard to not personalize that. It's very hard to continue to strive for the thing you want when nobody's saying, yeah, come on in. We, we, We like what you're doing. They're basically just no, no doors closing on your right. face. So Ryan was the first person who was like, I want to see you do this. I think you could do that. And they were just things that I didn't even have any idea I could do um,
0: at all. I would imagine all those no's for all those years <laughs> or, or, or people not seeing you or you not wanting to look close enough to see yourself, I would assume that if you weren't careful, you could start to confuse that for, you, you would start to sort of, Decide where your ability is based upon...
1: Totally. That's, I mean, that's an occupational hazard in this, in this business. But in this world, in the, in the business of being human, you know, it is, it's Is really, rating
0: yourself by people's reactions to you.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I had a good friend once tell me, don't ever confuse your self-worth with your ability to get a job, not get a job, or like how much money you're being paid, or, you know, your self-worth, your value you know, is not being dictated to you by whether or not I get an acting job or don't get an acting job. It doesn't make me less valuable as a person. It doesn't mean that I'm not talented. I have been in the situation now where at least a handful of times where someone has come in and been so incredibly fantastic, but not right for the part. And I, I never used to believe that because I always thought, well, if that, you know, you'd get feedback. Every once in a while, we get feedback, like, you were the best person they saw today, but they're not going to go with you. They're going to go with blah. And I'm like, I don't know how to reconcile that of doing the best work of the day but not getting the job. I thought, so it's not a meritocracy. You learn that very quickly, you know. It's a business. It's really a business. And um, the most talented people don't always get to do the things that they should get to do. Right. So I, I think if there's a way you can learn that you're... I'm still the same actress I was when I wasn't getting hired. Had nothing ever happened for me, the way it's happened for me wouldn't mean that I weren't of value and that I didn't have something to contribute artistically, even if I had to do it in my basement yeah. or make my you know movie on my iPhone, or, you know, I don't know what. I think that's the trapping of all of this stuff in terms of the success or lack thereof is is you end up feeling like when you're successful, you're like, Oh yeah, I deserve this. You know, people get into sort it's of assholy behavior or they I'm, think they're being they're getting these jobs just because they're good or just because of these things and sometimes that is true, but other times there's a lot
0: of other things that go into it. As humans, we do not have an accurate system for measuring self-worth. Oh, my so, God, yeah. Like, there's no way So you do to, naturally look to other people to be like, yeah. Right, well, how I are you okay, going
1: to As opposed to looking in the mirror and going, I like what I see. I don't right. care what that person says. I don't care what that person thinks. These are my favorite shoes. But These if you go my, out you know to auditions
0: I mean? every day for six months and you absolutely feel great about yourself and you hear no every day, very Almost hard impulse. to look in your mirror.
1: Herculean uh, yeah. effort, and I don't know that it, I don't. You know, there are dents made, for sure, in the very soft part of your soul and psyche that, that makes it hard to continue to, you know, it's hard. It's hard. It's not for the faint of heart, being a person. I'm not talking about just being an actor. It's not, it's not for the faint of heart, being a person. It's hard.
0: Yeah. I, I really latched on to something you said a little earlier about th- the fact that you liked playing real people because— there were limits and parameters. Yes. And I was curious about that in regards to the Marsha Clark Park. Mm-hmm. I would assume 90% of your career has been playing not real people?
1: Yeah. And, I, yeah. and
0: was the approach totally different? to, to Like a, a, a different task and a different way to figure out how to tackle it?
1: You know, I was so scared. I was scared out of my mind. Uh, I really didn't think I could pull it off. I thought... Um, you know, fear is an incredible motivator. Um, that I spent probably every waking m- moment available to me. Watch. I mean, again, this is another very lucky thing, was there was so much footage. Right. of Marsha. You could ingest. Um, you could I could consume. watch and watch. Like I read her book. To me, it was about sort of what we were talking about earlier. It was just I was just shoving as much into my mouth as right as I possibly could.
0: Well, when you say I was so scared, what image comes up in your mind?
1: Uh like walking out on stage naked and face-planting. That's what I was... Just because it was like the thud heard around the world. I mean, everybody was talking about this thing when all the, you know, John Travolta and this one and that one, and is this thing going to be like a funny show or is this going to be... Like, nobody knew what it was going to be. And I just thought there was no way it was going to happen quietly, whatever it was. And I thought that is really scary. It's one thing when you're making something no one knows what you're making, and then all of a sudden it hits and people go crazy and you're like, well, we were just making this little thing and we didn't know. This was talked about, you know, from its from the get. So, you know, it, not to mention the fact that I was worried about Marsha.
0: Yeah, did you did you worried. feel a responsibility to her?
1: Like nothing else in the world.
0: Was there an inclination to just call her up and say, come over here?
1: Oh, I was so desperate to talk to her and I was really discouraged from doing it. So um, I didn't until we did the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha episode, which was episode six, and as I was starting episode seven, Ryan said to me, you, you've done it now. You've done it, and you can you can talk to her. If Why you... were you discouraged um, from talking to her? I think it was a combination of things, but chiefly, um, y- you know, when you're playing a character that's a real person, that person may have a lot of feelings about what you're doing. They may want to uh, offer some information that is not what your, you know, I had a job to do that was on the page the way it was written, and um, I think there was concern that then I was going to feel responsible to, uh, that if Marcia said, oh, well, that's not how it happened, or that I was going to then come in with, you know, that it would just be cloudy. So when I did find the email her, it was, that was quite a day,
0: yeah. Well, right. I want to hear about that, yeah. but I also want to I want to ask you about you know I read that, that you wanted to wear the perfume she wore that I didn't you want a, to, I did. You did yeah and, that you walked with her. I a mean I wanted to and
1: I did yeah, I did walk with a funny
0: woman because she was a dancer. A dancer yeah. And obviously those are things. No one's going to notice. The audience <laughs> can't smell their no, television and, no. But at the same time, I wonder what what those things did for you to make you feel ready or feel like you, you were knowing her.
1: I feel like it was the night it was the only way for me to do it. It's the only way for me to do it. Uh, Why would I not try to walk like her if it's evident to me that she's walking in a particular way in everything I'm watching? So it's like, oh, don't do that because they won't. I'm not interested in what they feel, the audience feels about it. I'm interested in telling the truth for the character. So whether or not the audience notices it, takes it in. But for me, it made me feel not like me, which is always the goal for me when I'm working as much as possible. The more I can look in a mirror particularly physically and not see myself the better I think I'm capable of being.
0: How do you know when you have disappeared? Is well, there was, a point where you go, "Oh, I'm I'm having different feelings or I'm responding or
1: I just was so there was something about that part
0: where I just
1: when we went to Rockingham and we were shooting over in the area where the murders took place like I was so nauseous, sick to my stomach and very sort of shaky feeling and we were, you know, doing that scene where we walk into Nicole's house and I can see that they've taken away taken away all of her um, right. pictures that, of her, that made it, made it clear that she was a mother and that it showed her life, as opposed to this thing that the um, defense was trying to paint her as a kind of harlot or whatever they were doing. Um, and I was just so disturbed by the whole thing. And I just knew my reaction was Marsha's reaction. It wasn't... It's not that I wouldn't have been horrified, but my the visceral way I felt it. And it feels sort of hokey to talk about, because it feels like... Not, not, not to me at I all. mean, it just feels like... But I really did... I remember, like, um, Courtney B. Vance and, and Schwimmer and some of the other guys that were there that day. Um, they were all laughing and joking about it. It was a small, tiny scene, but they were talking in between takes, and I remember being like, Shut up. Like, just stop. Like... <sighs> This isn't funny, there's nothing about this, it's funny, there's nothing about this that's light like and it those are like some of my really good friends and with camaraderie, I can't even describe to you the alchemy that we had as as performers, so it's not an actual way I feel about them at all, and I'm the biggest cut up usually on a set all the time, and um I'm the first person to break and start laughing always no matter what I'm doing so it wasn't like a a Sarah having a being uh, some personal affront to the way I work it was was having like a Marsha reaction and feeling very like, don't be rude, be respectful of this house that we're in. This was a set, it wasn't even the real house. So it's like, I was like in a cuckoo, like having a thing that was not, not on planet Earth, okay? Not on planet Earth and I can't wait to have another part where that happens to me. To I me mean it's that. just like, everything that happens that's not that to me is like,
0: <gasps> boring. But that's evidence right there that you had disappeared. I
1: dis. yes, I guess so because I can't if you had any person on this program and you asked them about working with me, I'm the person who's like got their finger up their nose. I'm spitballing someone like I'm a I'm that girl. Not that I'm not capable of concentration, it's just if it if something happens in a scene that wasn't supposed to happen, I'm laughing and I ruin the take. And I don't mean to, but I just can't. It's just the way I am. So it was not it was not a typical thing. My reaction was not a very Sarah thing. It was a
0: That's so fascinating. Uh, What was it like to meet her after all of that? Um, I mean, were you self-critically judging all of your own decisions when you were sitting with her, or were you trying to take in more?
1: I think what I really felt was I wanted her to know that I thought we were doing right by her. This is not a takedown. This is not a... She was nervous. She was nervous. I mean, when I first saw her come through the door, it was like I was seeing, um, I don't know... Who's the most sparkly, excite like who's the person that would be like make you just fall over?
0: Oh gosh. Paul McCartney. Okay.
1: So yeah, Paul McCartney.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was that who it was? That's what it was Did like. you elevate her in your mind to a beetle because you'd she been She was
1: like a Beetle to me. And then I she pushed her way through the um, revolving door. And it was it was like out of a love love movie. Like a, it was like a it was like I was like moonie. Slow motion. Yeah, it was like slow motion and she came through the thing. It was like light glistening on the mole and she came and I was like you know, it was like that. I cried in midway midway through the dinner. I was like, I just,
0: I think it, <laughs> it's just too tragic. Well, me. I, I mean, it, it must be. And strange, she was scared, and she too.
1: expressed that she was nervous, right, about what it was going to be. And I did try to assure her and reassure her that it was something I thought was going to be the opposite. I had no idea that it was going to be received the way it was, and that people were going to feel so guilty, myself included, for a sort of deeply held uh, erroneous belief
0: about about her. Right, but no, but it, it had to be fascinating to, to study someone that completely and and spend every waking moment and then and have that person. And in then the flesh. person,
1: because it's one thing to do that with a person who you know is deceased, or you're playing a, a, a historical person that's no longer alive, and that's its own thing. But yeah, I got to sit across from her. I have her phone number, you know. I text her sometimes, I just texted her yesterday. She's your Paul McCartney. She's my Paul McCartney.
0: I wonder about your self-critic and when it comes up the most, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: when you watch your performance, do, do you? Uh, I didn't
1: watch it. I haven't watched it to this day.
0: You haven't? Uh uh-uh. You know, it's a good show. <laughs>
1: That's what I've you been told. You should see
0: it. <laughs> are, you, yeah. are you serious that yeah. you're not laying in bed at night going, I'm just gonna, it's been a couple of years now, I could no. watch it. No is that because you are protecting yourself or because you know or you have uh, the memory of it is so wonderful that you don't tell you exactly what it is okay well
1: i am such uh i will notice every single thing that i did wrong marcia was left-handed i'm right-handed i will notice every time i pick the cup up with my right hand instead of my left i will notice um moments where i'm like why did they pick that take i remember there was another one like I will tear it down and I don't want to, to tear down the thing that for me was the most special extraordinary artistic experience of my life coupled with being the thing that I was the most sort of celebrated for that I don't want to then like start mailing back uh statues because um I've decided it's
0: shit Is that true
1: Yes I don't want to I don't want to go oh my god how embarrassing I didn't deserve any of that. And this is no. It'd be so, so I thought, what would, it, what would happen if you did something you've never done before and you just chose to believe what people are saying and that the thing is good and that you are good and that at the end of the day, what this meant to you was so special that you're going to keep it clean. You're going to keep it safe for yourself and not Tear this one down, and it's something I've never done before. And it was just a way of knowing myself well enough to know that I was gonna blow it up in a way that would be so unkind to something that was so beautiful. And um, I'm not yet at the place where I can regulate my uh, decimate, you know, my my finger on the button tendencies. So I thought the only way to do it is to protect myself. So I'm being a good Friend to myself by saying, "Let this be what it is. It's so pure and beautiful, and was unlike anything you've ever experienced in your life, and has brought so much opportunity and uh, excitement to your working life. Just let that thing live in that place. And to to me, at the end of the day, whether I, if I had never, if though, if I hadn't won any of those things, and the show had not won all those things, it it still would have been what it was for me. So it has nothing to do with that outcome, although that was delicious cake. It was incredible cake. I ate every bite of it. I loved it enormously. But it still was what it was for me if nobody watched it. It's yours. It was mine. And I just felt very protective of it. Maybe when I'm an old lady I'll watch
0: it. Uh, It's fascinating to me. And I, and, and I, I think it's beautiful to see how you how you relate to your own work. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems like it is a well-earned thing that you have done, that you have, you have changed your, your relationship with your work, with your self-critic. And, and because of that, the work you're doing is incredible and the opportunities are there and, and it's working. So,
1: I, I guess so. I don't know.
0: And you don't have to pay nine bucks a month for I Netflix. I don't have
1: to pay nine. <laughs> it's on Netflix, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. Yeah,
1: okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I pay for Netflix because I have to watch The Crown.
0: It must be weird, though. Recommended for you.
1: Yeah, some, yeah they did. They have recommended it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> not doing it.
0: <laughs> not doing it. Well, listen, it's been fascinating to talk Thank to you. Thank for and having me. It's so nice like to talk to you. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface.
1: We'll have to do it again.
0: I would love that. Yeah, do it again. Thank you. Hey folks, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed that. And just as a little aside, that closing music you heard was actually my daughter playing trumpet in her final fifth grade music culmination. So a little proud moment for me as a father. So I talked a lot with Sarah about The People versus O.J. Simpson. And if you haven't seen that, go to Netflix right now and watch the whole thing. She is brilliant in the role and it'll make you look at that case in a whole new way. Also, make sure to see her in Blue Jay, Mark Duplass' film about two high school sweethearts who lost touch and then met up many years later to re-examine their relationship. It is a film experience like no other. One thing's for sure, whatever Sarah does, it's interesting, engaging, and unexpected. So I hope you enjoyed that show. I thought it was just a master class on acting and, and just incredible to hear her perspective. And if you're liking this show and like what you're hearing, take a minute, go to offcamera.com, And see all the different ways that you can go deeper into this experience. As you probably know, we are also a television show. But what you may not know is that you can have this television show in your own home on any device to watch as much as you want by simply getting the off camera television subscription. For only $4.99 a month, you can watch our entire archive and get new episodes every time we make them. It's a great way to stay up with the show and to really see these conversations. And look into the eyes of these people who are telling these stories. It's the most engaging way to experience off-camera. And if you haven't tried it yet, first I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. But check out the TV show as well. And tell your friends about us. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. Also, if you want to send me an email, maybe you just want to tell me what's going on in your life or how the show affects you, drop me a line at sam at offcamera.com. I want to thank everyone that works on this show. Crawford Chippy, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, Kara Johnson. Couldn't do it without them, so big thank you goes to our whole staff. See you next time, Off Camera.